0: Well, good morning. I wasn't sure if there'd be anybody left or not. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> well, today we come to our fifth Sunday in the series of the Forgotten Ways. We've been discovering together the marks of a healthy and emissional missional church, a church that pursues Christ and is pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. In our first week, we learned about how Jesus is the center of our world, And in the centrality of the word of God. And this is our first marker of a healthy missional church. Because God breathes scriptures. Points us to Jesus Christ. And the icon that you see is the sun. Because it is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God and is the light of the world. And for our second marker, the icon is the leaf. The leaf takes on what the sun offers. And it grows and it transforms. The second marker is telling us and pointing us to a life-transforming walk with Jesus Christ. We learned that sharing our stories of what God has been doing in our life and how God is still transforming us, helping us in that life-transforming walk. Week number three, we learned about what it means to become good news people, that God is transforming us for a purpose Our transformed lives. And when necessary, the words that we use can become the mouthpiece through which God speaks to the world. The microphone that you see, that is the mark for the intentional and engaging witness of our third week. And that brings us to today. We are us. For us to become the presence of God and who we are and the actions and be able to share that good news requires that we must be connected to one another. We cannot be good news people alone. Rather, we do need to be together. So as we talk about our marker today and we look at our icon today, it depicts the network. And that is where the nodes or the circles of each one is connected with one another. And as we learn about our fourth mark, the compelling Christian community, we will see how we are connected to one another and how we are much better in that way. In our series, one of the Bible stories that we have been looking at very, very carefully, we've been exploring the Israelite nation, and we've been talking weekly, we've been walking with them weekly, getting little bit of glimpses about who they are. As we walk with them on their journey. We walk with them. We've been reviewing with them. We've been learning with them. We've been relearning with them. And as they have had to relearn a lot of lessons that God has given to them throughout the course of their lives. And lessons that we need to relearn as well. When we first meet them, they are slaves in Egypt under the heavy and the brutal hand of Pharaoh. And all of those years that the Israelites have been in captivity, as they have been in slavery, they have again taken a toll on who they are as people and who they are as a nation. A very, very deep toll in their lives. Over the years and over the generations of slavery, they forgot so much of what God had taught them to begin with, including their relationship with one another and their relationship with God as we've learned over the last several weeks things that they had forgotten they had forgotten that god comes first that god is first that god is the only god above all gods they had forgotten to trust in god and so many things that happened in their lives were the downfall because of that as they learned as we learned last week from craig they had also forgotten And had to relearn how important it was to go when God told him to go. And to go where God told him to go. And to when not only do they go and do they, you know, where and when God tells them. But they need to tell the story that God has given to them. But they'd forgotten. Because the only place that they were going in captivity was that they saw themselves stuck. They saw that the only place that they were going to be able to go was one day after another to build more bricks and more bricks and more bricks. The only story they had to tell was how many bricks they'd made that day and if they had survived one more day. They were indeed stuck. While in slavery, they had also forgotten how to be a community with one another. They had forgotten what it was like to be in touch with one another. Because so oftentimes what was happening was if they began to talk to one another, they were beaten. And so they learned very, very quickly to keep their eyes focused only on what they were doing, only on the job that they had before them. And so not only had they lost touch with one another, but they had lost touch with God. Now, to be fair, that while they were slaves, they probably didn't have much chance to develop that opportunity with each other. As I said, they were forced to work. They were forced to make the bricks. They were forced to work long hours, seven days a week. They didn't get Saturdays and Sundays off. They didn't get to go to the beach. They didn't get to go to the pines. They didn't get to have a nice, quiet evening with family and friends at home. In fact, as I said, they were punished oftentimes severely if they were caught even talking to one another, even for a brief little time. They didn't get to gather together with others to sing and to pray and to worship and to soak in God's love as we're doing and growing closer and closer together with God. That was not a part of their life. At the end of their workday, they stumbled home, they ate what little they were given, and they fell into a sleep of exhaustion only to get up and repeat it the very, very next day. And so they did this day after day, generation after generation, forced into this back-breaking labor until they collapsed and died from exhaustion, illness, or starvation. As God began to lead them and was leading them out of Israel, out or out of out of Egypt, out of slavery, there was so much that they had to relearn and to be retaught as how to be a people of God. All of this includes how to be a community with one another, and into being. And as they're a community with one another, then they can also be the community to God. It goes hand in hand with one, each, one another, and God was very very clear with this. In Exodus 5, the first two verses, we see a glimpse of that conversation as God says to Moses and Aaron as he sends them to Pharaoh and says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is this Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. Well, we know that ultimately Pharaoh did let Israel go. And he did let the people go. But now there was another problem. Because they'd spent so much time in slavery that they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to make decisions for themselves. They didn't know how to, make, to be a part of one another. They didn't know how to work together without somebody pushing and driving them. And they didn't know how to worship God. They didn't know how to celebrate God anymore, not in a community with one another, not individually either. And so as we see during their journey, when the very first hardships came to them, what did they do? We want to go back. We want to go back to the comforts of slavery. They didn't know what to do on their own. That had been beaten out of them. Before they could learn to become a a community again and to celebrate God, they needed to unlearn the lessons that had held them safe so far. Each of us, like the Israelites, have learned lessons and behaviors as kids that have served us well for many, many years. For Israel, it was keeping their head down. Don't draw attention to yourselves. Blend in with the crowd. Don't be singled out. Don't talk to one another. Or don't get caught if you do. Don't be noticed. Do, to be do so meant that they could receive a severe, severe beating. For some of us, we have also learned how to fight for everything that we got to, to either hold for, for ourselves or for our loved ones. We've learned that if, it's, if we're going to get it, we have to fight for it. It's not going to be given to us. We learned those skills of survival. When living in a place of scarcity, we grabbed whatever we could. There was a study that was done with children that were coming out of war and famine. When they were brought to the orphanage, they were given three meals a day. There was plenty of food to go around. But what they discovered was even though the children had three meals a day, and they gave the children a piece of bread at night, just before they went to bed as a snack, the children would not eat that bread. They held on to it tight through the night. Because they had learned that there might not be more bread in the morning. And so they held on to this one. Because that's what they had in their hand. Even though the caregivers would say, but there will be more bread tomorrow. There will be more food tomorrow. They said, we're holding on to this one. And so as the caregivers began to see that, what they did was they gave the children one bread as a snack. And they gave them another piece of bread to hold on to for safety until they learned that, again, they could trust that they were no longer living in a place of scarcity, but they were living in a place where they would be fed and receive. They had to learn again and relearn to trust that there would be more bread come the morning. The Israelites lived in a place of scarcity for so long that they also had to unlearn the lessons of just surviving, and they had to learn again to trust God. And we see how that worked throughout their time in the wilderness. They had to learn to trust God and they had to learn to trust one another if they were ever going to be able to grow in the community. Imagine for just a moment that you are sitting in a circle and that everybody is facing outward and you're trying to talk to one another. Do you feel connected to them? or do you continue to feel like you are living in isolation many of the lessons and the ways that we learned as children served us well back then but not so much anymore now i grew up in a family that where the rule was very very simple don't tell anyone don't tell because we lived in a place of embarrassment and shame because of my father's alcoholism and his abuse don't tell anybody especially you don't want to tell anybody at church and you certainly don't want to tell anybody tell the pastor now that was pretty easy for me as a kid because I was scared to death of the senior pastor I'd see him coming this way and I would go that way absolutely i was scared to death and i wasn't about to tell him anything until a new pastor came into town and i began to realize that there was something a little bit different and i had already begun to realize in the church setting that something was different than my home now i always wondered what was going to happen if i told but i was a good little kid and i wasn't about to break the rule but ultimately i did break the rule and i did tell And I was scared to death that something horrific was going to happen because I broke the secret. But instead, what I received was God's graciousness. I received God's love, and I received the embracing of the community and the understanding and the support of that community. We live with rules as we grow up and we keep them because that's all we know. But some of those rules we need to let go of and we need to relearn other ways of being in a sense of a community with other people. It should not surprise me, but it does. And it saddens me when I realize the number of occasions that I learn only after the fact that someone has been living or struggling in a place of hard times all by themselves. How oftentimes we hear as, as pastors that somebody has been going through a hard time and they're all alone and they say, oh, I didn't want to bother anybody. But it's not a bother to share with the community. It is not a bother to be able to share and to come together and to be one with each other. I get that, though, because I am fiercely independent. The first time I messed up my knee, I came home from a trip, and I was faced with a three-story walk-up, and I was trying to navigate it on crutches. And my car was a gear shift. I had to figure out how I was going to walk up and down those three flights of stairs carrying groceries with my crutches, driving a gear shift with, hmm, I can't do that... I literally thought, okay, I can sell my car, find a new car so that I don't have to, at least I can drive myself. Also, I'd only been in this church for six months. I barely knew these people. You see where I'm going with this? I'm in trouble. I need people, and I had to ask for help. I had to ask for rides. I had to ask for uh, a place to live so that I could navigate and live. Fortunately, somebody had an open room on a first floor and they invited me to come into their home. I allowed and I learned how to receive the love of that community in a way that I had never received it before. And as I opened myself up to receive from that community, I also opened myself to receive from God. Because What I was realizing as I was turning and pushing people away from me because I can do it myself, thank you very much, I'm strong, I can do it. I was also saying the very same thing to God. I can do it myself. I don't need this, I can do it myself. But the truth is, I can't. And neither can you. We all need one another. Now, what I thought that I needed was rides what i thought i needed was no stairs but what i learned that i needed was to let go of my pride and my control to learn to receive and receive with graciousness and this opened me up to receive from the community and ultimately to be a better member of the community I also realized through that experience that sometimes the fierce independence does get in our way in so many ways. Like I said, it got my way of how I communicated and my opened up myself to receive from God as well. We need each other. We need to be a part of the network with each other. And we are only as strong as that weakest side We cannot do it all ourselves. We cannot. We must let go of ourselves and let go of our control in order to let people come into our lives to let and help us. This is what it means to be a part of the community. Now, how many times, if you have had a child, or if you've watched a parent that has a child, how many times do you watch them, and they fight and fight and fight to go to sleep? You know that they are exhausted. You are exhausted and you're trying everything you possibly can to help that child go to sleep, but they're fighting every step of the way. And yet, the more they fight and they try to be in control, they push others away and with their crankiness until finally they do let go and they fall into the most beautiful, peaceful sleep that you have ever seen. That's the way it is with us. The harder we try to be in control, the crankier we become. And the more that we do push other people away. Because face it, who likes to be around cranky people? Not I. And when we push other people away, because it's not an if we push others away. It is a when we push others away. Or when we want to do things on our terms and, not, and only with our conditions. Then what we're saying is, I know better than everybody else. And it is also coming out in our lives as saying, I also know better than God. My way is better than God's way. Israel wanted to be freed from slavery. Yet without learning to live in a community with one another or, and living in a community with God, they were on a path of self-destruction. When life is falling down around us, it's so easy to take our our eyes off of God, to forget and not to see where God has been faithful to us throughout our lives. Slowly through the course of their journey, through the wilderness and through the desert, they began to learn how to be a community again. It was not an easy journey, and it was not without its faults. But each and every one of them needed to come into that community and into that commitment with God. It wasn't enough that they were being newly freed slaves, set free because they didn't know what to do now. They needed to learn lessons and they needed to unlearn lessons. They needed to be able to pass it along to others and they needed to pass it along to the next generation. In Deuteronomy 11, we learn that we are to fix, our, the, fix these words, these words of mind, these words of God, in your hearts and in your minds. It is not just enough to know them. But we need to fix them inside of ourselves. We need to tie them as symbols on our hands and bind them on our foreheads. We need to teach them to your children, talking with them when, they will, when you sit at home and when you walk on the road when you lie down and when you get up. In essence, we are to teach our children every single day, every single moment. It's to be natural that we are talking to our our children about God. And we are to write them on our door frames of our homes and on our gates so that in your days and in the days of your children that they may be many in the land that the Lord has sworn to give to your ancestors as many as the days that are in heaven are above the earth. The Israelites had to learn their lessons, but if they had just learned them and kept them to themselves, they would have only done part of the story. It is to fix those words in our hearts and our minds and then to teach them to go and to be and to teach. But we can only do that when we are in community with one another, when we share with one another, because we're constantly learning to teach one another. Think for a moment how many things you have to learn in your lifetime. All the way from walking and talking to reading and writing and arithmetic, as they used to say. We learn the rules of a game and we learn the rules of the road, just to name a few. But none of those, none of those are more important than learning to be in community with one another and in community with God. We are created to be and to worship and to celebrate God. Now, in just a few moments, Craig is going to be helping us identify and some of those instructions that God has given to us as a community of believers and those instructions that we are to take into our hearts and our minds and teach them to our children. Now, one of the lessons that I learned was is to ask for help, and to be remembering that I cannot do it myself. And so um, I want you to be praying for me as I prepare to go into surgery on October the 30th. Um, I'm getting a total brand new knee. Um, and I need your prayers. And I welcome your prayers. Um, I may also need some rides. Although it's, I don't have a gear shift anymore but I'm still trying to figure out whether or not I can get a long, straight knee, leg into my car. So I may need some of that. And there may be other things. And I've learned that I do, uh, and that I can ask. And I have learned to be able to say thank you when I ask. And I hope that you also learn that. Now, I do confess that I still like to be on the giving side much more than the receiving side. But as a community of faith, I cherish your prayers for me.
1: As a young man, which was quite a while ago, I was an athlete with a lot of discipline. Discipline to work out every day, discipline to work out beyond the rigors of being with the team, and experienced some wonderful successes as I grew up. I discovered how important it was to discipline the mind. It wasn't until I got married that I discovered there's a whole other kind of driver to accomplishing what needs to be done, and that's called devotion. Discipline comes from the mind. It can be rigorous. It can have sharp edges to it. Devotion comes from the heart. It embraces. It longs. It has passion, and it drives in a deeper way than just the simple discipline of the mind. This morning, as we look at this text and just unravel it just a little bit, doesn't mean much unraveling. It's fairly simple. It's God's strategic plan for the church. This this plan is a plan of devotion. It depicts the choice we've made in our heart to do something. It is a discipline of the heart. Let us learn the devotion of the early church, which God began to teach the children of Israel in Moses' day and longs to teach us now, even though it's a couple thousand years since this was first taught in that early church. The first thing is this. The early church was devoted to learning from the scriptures. They longed to know what they had to say. And when the New Testament talks about learning from the scriptures, it's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. It was still an oral tradition. It was something they were experiencing firsthand together. All the believers, it says, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was that teaching about the Old Testament and how it pointed to Jesus. It was the oral tradition of what Jesus had done in their midst for three and a half years as they lived and walked and talked and watched him do his thing of grace in the community of Israel. They listened, they learned from the apostles who Jesus is, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, what was driving him, and it was his passionate love for people to rescue them for the Father. The people of the early church devoted themselves to knowing Jesus the Messiah. Secondly, the early church was devoted to being together with other believers. It says all the believers devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, fellowship, that's an interesting word. Do you ever use that outside of the context of the church? Probably not. It's a pretty jargonized word. It's technical to us. Most churches have fellowship halls. You've changed it to the gathering place. People talk about having a fellowship gathering. In the Greek word, there's a dialect of Greek called koine Greek, which is Greek for the common people. There was a lot of technical stuff in the Greek language. Alexander the Great wanted that technical stuff being understood with no margin for for error in it at all. But in Koine Greek, it was the way people talked to each other on the street or in the marketplace as they got in each other's homes. It was the language of the normal people. The word for fellowship in Greek is koinonia, meaning having in common. And the people in the early church had everything in common. They had in common the person of Jesus Christ, They had in common the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They had in common a belief that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised. They had in common the persecution, both from their families of origin and from the outside forces of the cultural world. They had so many things in common. And so koinonia began to be what fellowship is in English. The people of the early church devoted themselves to being together with one another. They liked each other. Now there's a concept, isn't there? It's a wonderful concept. Some of us are so easy to like. Some of you are so wonderful. Then there's us pushy folk. Or us negative folk. Or us, I'll never forget, in the church that I served for 19 years in Easton, every once in a while there would, no, it was every Sunday, After the service, a bulletin would be slid under my secretary's door and every misspelled word, every wrong punctuation was circled and there was no name on it. My first reaction was, I'm getting that person. I'm going to get him. That was my mental discipline from those sports pre-Christ days. My second one was, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get them to proof the bulletin before we print it. I found her. It was a her. It's not always a her, but it was a her. And she began to proof our bulletin. You know that no more bulletins ever slid under that door? Because I put her to work. She was obviously gifted in editing, and we wanted to utilize her gift. We need to long to be with each other and discover, even some of us who get to be curmudgeonly, there's something there that we can grow with. There's something there that we can learn about. We can. The early church was devoted to being together with other believers. Third, the early church was devoted to intimacy with Jesus. All the believers devoted themselves to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. The breaking of bread, as it's said in other translations, most likely referred to Holy Communion in this particular part of the text. They met regularly to share the celebration of the life of Jesus in their midst, even though he had gone back to the Father. And so they met together, and seeing him as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice to cover their sin, they felt a closeness, a deep dependence, a powerful love for Jesus and what he had done for them. They had been set free by him. And it says, and to prayer. Prayer was a centerpiece of their life as well. They learned that Jesus had spent much time in prayer personally, often early in the day. As you just read in a cursory sort of way the Gospels, you'll see Jesus off by himself to pray, off by himself to pray, off by himself to pray. They learned that Jesus did not teach the apostles how to preach. I wish he had. We've had to work hard at preaching It's an effort. What do we have to say? We've got the scriptures. We go to class to learn how to do this. It's called hermeneutics and then it's called homiletics. Those are technical terms too. How to read the scripture and understand what it's speaking out of it. And then how to deliver what it's saying. God help us. Jesus, will you come back just for a little while and teach us how to preach. So we can be more effective. Jesus didn't teach them how to preach. Jesus taught them how to pray how to connect with God, how to go straight to the Father because he had built the bridge across the gap that we could not cross and makes it possible for us to speak to him directly in the name of Jesus. They were devoted to intimacy with Jesus. Fourthly, the early church was devoted to generously meeting needs. All the believers met together in one place, shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions. They shared the money with those in need. They did more than just hang out together, as wonderful as that was. They shared what they had. They even sold personal things in order to meet the need of someone else. What if we shared? Really? I mean, really shared. I look in my neighborhood. I live in a wonderful neighborhood. We're the grandparents in the neighborhood. It's all these young people with relatively young kids. So we're the old guys. But I look around. There are just so many snowblowers, it's unbelievable. We don't need all those snowblowers. We could share with each other. Imagine how we'd get to know each other even during the winter, or lawnmowers. And on we could go with the things we share. I've noticed driving home, I'm getting to do a lot of driving these days because we live 36 miles, 40 minutes away. And so up every morning and down every night. I've discovered all the back roads that are possible between here and there to avoid the accidents on the Wilbur Cross Parkway. I love Waze, that app that helps me get around all those accidents and slowdowns on the road. And what I notice more than anything else as I'm driving home or driving to church is how many cars I am passing or are passing me have one person in them. Have you noticed that when you drive? Have you noticed the size of our commuter parking lots? This sanctuary is about the size of many of them because not many people ride together. We have a terrible public transit system in our country. It could be so much, but you go to Europe, you don't need a car. You can get anywhere. It's amazing because we are independent. I mean, really independent. Do you feel it? What would happen if we really began to share? In a systemic and systematic sort of way. These people were devoted to generously meeting needs. Not just simply and importantly the needs of someone who's having a knee replacement. But the needs of everyday life together. I love Covenant Village of Cromwell because... While there's a great move in our country for aging in place, which means staying home, it's a nice way to stay home, and there's a wonderful option to do that, it's more wonderful, in my opinion, to age in that place with lots of people around, with lots of shared interests, with lots of possibilities for things that you can do because the shared community that supports you in a place like that, and there's many like that in our midst. And number five, the early church was devoted to do all of these things consistently. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God. It was the dailiness of this adventure they were on. They were in touch with each other. They weren't locked on their phones or their iPads or their computers or their television or their personally favorite activities, they were focused on one another and being together and being Christ's children, sisters, brothers, ambassadors together. They were devoted to do all these things consistently. And listen to what happens. The consequences of that devotion? The early church was in awe. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. They were not in awe of what they were doing. They were in awe of how God had rescued, forgiven, and empowered them. He, they were in awe of how God had given them a love for one another that was beyond what they'd ever experienced before. That's the awe I experienced when I met Carolyn. How many of you have had a chance to meet Carolyn? A few of you? She's a meat, let me tell you. She is a meat. She has no strangers in her life. She's been to me the prime example of a person who really cares for people. It's the best part of me is her. I had no idea about how that could be until we met. I chased her until she caught me. (laughs) It's kind of how it worked. And we met the first day of college together. And I learned from her how to be in awe of someone and the relationship that can happen when two people really have a passion for one another. But there's more than just the passion of a husband and wife for each other. There's the passion of people for people. People matter. Jesus said in the Gospel of John very clearly that God loves the entire world, all of the creation. That church was in awe of life. And their devotion to God and one another freed up the apostles to be conduits through which God could do miraculous signs and wonders because they weren't busy trying to fix relationships that were broken. They were busy doing the work of God while these people loved on each other. Not only that, the early church, secondly, enjoyed the favor of all the people. The people in the early church weren't telling others what they should do. The people in the early church weren't separating themselves away from the world and avoiding contact. The people in the early church were living genuinely devoted lives for God and others, and it included those outside the walls of the church. They cared for folks. They provided ways to help folks. They were a wonderful example for folks. And people got to know Christ through them because of the way they loved each other, because that was what they learned from Jesus himself. The common people of their day were in favor of the lives of these people in the early church. And thirdly, the church grew. Each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You see, it is a strategic plan. The favor turned into attraction. They became, they came, and then they became Jesus' followers themselves. The early church's genuine devotion to Jesus draws people to Jesus. It always has. It always will. The church had become like a pied piper in attracting people and it grew, it multiplied, and it exploded across the entire Mediterranean basin. It's amazing to read that history and how quick the Church of Jesus Christ grew. Is this application transferable? Can this happen here? It has. It is to a degree. It could be a whole lot more. It could be a whole lot more. As we follow this vitality pathway and become a more healthy and missional church, really pursuing Jesus, really pursuing Jesus' priorities in the world, this can happen. With God's help, we can be a church devoted that all of, to all that enables us to be a winsome people, that our group witness will overwhelm the community and they will long to know what's driving it in us. There's a story. I use the term Pied Piper. It's the Pied Piper of Hamelin. How many of you read it when you were a small child? I'm in the right crowd now. It's a story of the town of Hamelin that happens to be rat infested. No matter what they try, the townspeople can't rid themselves of the rats. And one day a man comes to town and offers to solve their problem by playing a pipe. He tells the mayor a certain amount it will cost, and the mayor agrees to pay the amount once it's done. The man plays the pipe. the rats follow him out of town and go and takes them to the river where all but one of them drowns. Rats do not pass swimming lessons. Hamlin is rid of the rats. The people are delighted, but the mayor won't pay. This is why we pray for our politicians. The mayor won't pay. The piper returns. He plays the pipe again. This time it's the children that follow him out of town. He leads them to a cave in a mountain. And all the children except one disappears. Hamlin is now rid of the children. And they're devastated. It's a horrible story. Just awful. I don't know how that ever got labeled as a children's book. Unless it was a quick way to shame them into changing behavior. Which, my friends, is not a sustainable way to do that. But here's how I see it working for us. Jesus is a pied piper. He comes to a sin-infested world, a sin-infested people, and he takes the sin away. He's destroyed it, and therefore death on the cross we call Calvary. When we receive Jesus, our sin is no longer. We are set free to live, and we are transformed to be like him, pipers in his behalf. If we live devoted to scripture, devoted to intimacy with Jesus, devoted to each other, devoted to generosity, and are doing this devotion consistently, Then we, like Jesus, will win people back to God. And we will be a healthy, missional church that is a compelling Christian community. And don't we all want that? Don't we? I do. I want that for you. I want that for me. That's where I want to worship. That's where I want to be a part of. But there's another side to the story it's the dark side. It's a tragic side, but it's a real side. I've seen it way too many times. If a church is not devoted to the scripture, If a church is not devoted to intimacy with Jesus or to each other or to generosity and doesn't consistently do those things together, then the church will not win people to God. The church will not be a compelling Christian community. That church will neither be healthy nor missional. And that church will lose its children. That church will lose its children not because Jesus will lead them away, The world will lead them away. That's the music they will hear. That's the Piper song that will be played. And they will see the hypocrisy of an undevoted people and will choose to not be a part of it. I want our kids to be part of it. I want us to be part of it. I want our community in Berlin, Newington, Cromwell and beyond all the way to Milford, where we live, to be a part of it. I want our society to be a part of it. And it requires that we have a devotion to these things, to this strategic plan of God as a church, for each other and for our world. Let us honestly face the opportunity we have to be fully devoted as followers of Jesus. Let's confess our lack of devotion where we fall short. Let us be renewed to live lives that are devoted to Jesus Christ and become a more compelling Christian community so God can do his thing, his work, through us to our world. Let us pray. Holy Father, we desire to be a compelling Christian community. I know it. And we know it begins with each of us desiring to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. We know that you have an overwhelming passion for us. You've shown us that passion in so many ways, and we are so grateful. Help us to have an overwhelming passion for you, for your son Jesus, for your Holy Spirit, for each other as fellow followers, and for all the people of our world, all of them. Help us, Lord, to truly love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.